Well, this morning, the title of the message is Clashing Viewpoints. We could call it viewpoints. We could call it worldview. We could call it your perception, how you see things. And the reality is we all see things a little differently, don't we? We all come from different backgrounds, different upbringings, perhaps raised in different parts of the country. And we sometimes joke about this back and forth. Oh, you think this is cold? And who typically says those statements? Those from the north, right? This ain't nothing compared to what I grew up with, you know, and and back and forth. There's a different viewpoint. There's a different perception of what cold is. And it's true. You go up into Canada and it's 50 degrees and everybody's in shorts and jumping in the lake. This is a very classic illustration or example of different viewpoints. You've heard this before, you know, the elephant and all these men are blind and they're feeling different parts of the elephant and they're all describing an elephant differently. We've all seen this before. One says, oh, it's a snake and then they're a rug. No, it's a spear, a tree, a wall, a rope. And which one is right? They're all right, aren't they? And they could argue as long and as hard as they wanted to. No, it's a wall. No, I felt it. It's a rope. And they could go on and on and on when, at the end of the day, they're both right. They just have different perspectives, and they're seeing this same animal, if you will, from different perspectives. Here's another example of people seeing different letters. No, it's a U. No, it's an N. It's a 6. No, it's a 9. You get the idea. This one, it really has nothing to do with anything other than the fact that some of you see that it's moving when, in fact, it's not moving. Is it moving for you? No. Does anybody appear like it is moving? Which one of you is right? I don't know. This probably I should have left out. How about this one? Maybe you haven't seen this before. This was developed in 1995. All different shapes here. But you have these different letters, A and B. Are those two tiles that A and B are on, are they the same color? Or is one darker and one is lighter? Y'all are kind of shy this morning. Same color? How many think one's darker and one's lighter? Who's right and who's wrong? Well, supposedly they're the same color. And I looked at that for a long time and I thought, how can that be? That's just a, you know, a gradual gradient change. They're messing with me here. So I myself decide to crop this picture and make it smaller. Now, does that look like the same color? It's the same picture. It's all still there. I just cropped it, but it's the same color. But it's the teasing of your eyes, of the shadow of this cube, and and your brain is trying to make it work as if it's, you know, fitting all these different things. But it depends on the things around that, you know, the the context, if you will, of this drawing, of the picture, of the situation that sometimes as well can affect and impact our viewpoint. Well, we're going through this series on Paul, a man of grace and grit. And some of you have made little comments here and there. Our last one we talked about was the church in conflict. And somebody said, oh, there must be some real conflict in this church. And I just want to respond. In fact, it almost doesn't matter what I preach on. People say, were you trying to preach at me? Were you trying to preach at sister so-and-so? I was just going through God's word. And if the Holy Spirit is convicting you and you want to give yourself away by telling me so, that's fine. But I'm just going through the story of Paul. But last week, we spent the bulk of our time looking really at the bulk of Acts chapter 15 as the church was in conflict over the requirements of Gentiles joining the church. And now, in the last few verses of Acts 15, we're going to pick up the story this morning, and we will see not the church in conflict, but two missionaries in conflict. Missionaries in conflict? I thought they just prayed all day and preached sermons and smile, and they're always happy and agreeable. Now, I already alluded to the fact I was a student missionary, and let me tell you, there were about 19 of us on Ponape, and there was some conflict. I did my best to stay out of the conflict. We didn't call it conflict as much as drama. There was drama, yes. 
So clashing viewpoints. This is number 10 in this series that we're going through here. Um, But I think this message is especially important in the light of a little bit of review of where we've been. And we'll try and do this in brief. To get started in this review of where we've been, you will recall this is a picture or a drawing, if you will, of the Sanhedrin, also called the Council in Acts 6, verse 12. It was a 71-member Jewish high court, if you will. And you have the, the person there being tried in number three, The main person is up at the top, the high priest, number one. Then you have all these people on the sides, and then you have the clerks around number four. A pretty intimidating group, and it was thought, it was very probable, and in fact, Spirit Prophecy confirms that Saul would have been part of this group, even though Scripture doesn't mention him. It's highly likely he was there when they tried Stephen. And you may recall that when they did try Stephen, they brought up false witnesses against Stephen, and he was condemned to die. And we've yet our first mention, not of Paul, but of Saul in Scripture, when And there is this stoning of Stephen and Paul stands by and is guarding their garments while they stone him. And Saul is a huge opponent of those of the way. And so everywhere he goes, he's seeking to kill Christians as far away as Damascus, 150 miles northeast of Jerusalem. That's our first picture of Saul. You also recall that he is struck with a bright light on the road to Damascus, falls off his horse. And what does he hear? But the voice of God saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's blinded. He's led into Damascus and there he waits and he fasts and he prays for three days. Then Ananias comes, brave and faithful Ananias, and he opens the eyes of Saul and delivers the words of the Lord. Saul, you are a chosen vessel of God's to bear his name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So we are told that Paul arises and is baptized, but then we also looked in this series that according to Galatians 1 verses 16 and 17, he doesn't start preaching immediately, but rather he goes into the desert of Arabia for three years where he's alone in prayer, in reflection, developing his theology, communing with God. And then after that period of three years in the wilderness, he goes back to preach in Damascus. But the church will not have it and they're out to kill Saul. And so some of the believers help Saul escape over the wall in a basket. And from there, Saul travels to Jerusalem. Perhaps he can convince some of his friends on the Sanhedrin. They will understand if I can just proof text them. But they're completely closed to any such thing. Well, if I can just meet with the disciples. But the disciples themselves are afraid to interact with Saul. And so that's when Barnabas enters into this story. Barnabas, the encourager, comes alongside of Saul and says, here, let me help introduce you to the disciples. Let me tell the disciples how God is working through you, how you are in fact one of us. And so that meeting takes place and they accept him and he's preaching in Jerusalem, but the church is not happy with him there as well. And so they're out to kill Saul and Saul is more than willing than to lay down his life for God's cause as Stephen did. But the church says, no, 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 we're going to smuggle you out of here. And so they take him out of Jerusalem And he sets his foot to Tarsus. And there, Saul is for in Tarsus, in that area, that region, for five to six years. Some even think as much as ten years he's there in Tarsus, living as a tent maker, certainly ministering, but not enough to get mentioned, not in Scripture anyway. And at the same time, the work with the Gentiles is growing, especially in Antioch. Word gets back to Jerusalem. Whom shall we send? They send Barnabas. He checks it out. It's true. Things are exploding in Antioch. And so when Barnabas sees the great need, he says, I need help. And who does the Holy Spirit bring to his mind but none other than Saul? And where's Saul? He 
He's in Tarsus, just a hundred mile walk away. And so he goes and he finds. Find my friends? No. Text message? No. Quick phone call? No. Probably word of mouth. Have you seen Saul of Tarsus? They get together. They travel back. I imagine they have some great time catching up on this trip back to Antioch. And then they minister there together for a whole year. And the Lord blesses their ministry immensely. In fact, we're told that the first believers were called Christians in Antioch. Then the Holy Spirit spoke to the church and said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so the church lays hands on Saul and Barnabas and sets them apart for the work of ministry and sends them away. And so I imagine they plan this missionary journey. Where should we go? Where is there some type of work established? Maybe we're going to go to some places there's no work at all, but we feel the people will be receptive and prayerfully they consider and they set out. They first go to the island of Cyprus and then seven other prominent cities. And it is on this first missionary journey, we're told that Saul was also known as Paul. Everywhere they went, they preached the gospel. This duo, this dream team, if you will, the gospel according to Jesus Christ and the things that were fulfilled through Bible prophecy in Christ, the way of salvation through Christ, the fulfillment of the sanctuary in Christ. And it wasn't just the common people, but in Paphos, the proconsul Sergius is converted. They have audience with him. God is blessing. After leaving the island of Cyprus and arriving in Perga, it was there that John Mark, who is accompanying them, a young man at the time, finds ministry to be too hard, too challenging. He not only becomes homesick, but I imagine he says, I didn't sign up for this. I'm not ready for this. I can't handle this. And so he decides to sail back home for Jerusalem. And I imagine Barnabas is there closest in that picture saying, hmm. And I imagine Paul's on the outside going, hmm. I mean, let's stop and think. Paul and Barnabas continued their journey without John Mark and without his assistance, walking a good 600 miles without this young man to help along the way. But despite a host of challenges, they make it through the first missionary journey. They return to the church in Antioch and they report in Acts 14, 43, all that God had done. Don't you like that? With them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. But soon after... And we looked at this last week. There was a disagreement within the church that was developing over the requirements of the new Gentile believers. So this Jerusalem council is called. And we saw, I say, keep saying last week, two weeks ago, we saw how by scripture, by looking at what Peter relates as what he was shown in vision, and then Paul and Barnabas are mentioned standing up, relating their experience of what they have seen the Holy Spirit doing in the places they have been. And then finally, James stands up and makes the decision that all of these agree together and they move forward as a church. And I share this review as a means to set up today's peace. After much history, years, literally, of ministering together, traveling around the then known world together, setting up multiple churches, seeing the Holy Spirit work mightily, enduring hardships together, knowing how each other works, knowing, oh, this is Barnabas' strong point. He's going to take care of this. Oh, I'm going to send you over to Paul. He's excellent at this. Yet we find next in scripture clashing viewpoints of this dream team, if you will. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to Acts chapter 15, verse 36. Acts chapter 15, verse 36. And there we read, then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Let's pay a pastoral visit. Let's check in on them. Let's see how the work is going. Let's encourage them. And verse 37, now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. 
But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then verse 35, then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. Barnabas suggests, let's take John Boy, John Mark. Paul responds, nope, John Mark will not be going on this trip. Colossians 4.10 tells us John Mark was Barnabas's cousin and he stands up for him. No, John Mark, he needs to come. Oh no, he won't. Absolutely not. And here we have opposing viewpoints and they're both passionate about their position. Each had remarkable giftedness and ministry savvy, yet in this debate, they become very emotionally charged. Have you been in a strong disagreement? With most disagreements, there is one issue, but several viewpoints, at least two, perhaps more. The issue may be clearly stated, but each individual may look at it differently based on past difficulties or upbringing, highly cherished values, and the rub comes because you see it differently than I do. I've also noticed when mediating that usually both sides have validity. There are strengths in both arguments. Both make legitimate points oftentimes. I mean, let's look at this biblical example. Both Paul and Barnabas have legitimate points. Paul could have quoted Luke chapter 9, verse 62. And the context is, let me first go and bury my father. Let me say goodbye to my household. And Jesus responds here and says, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Paul could have said, John Mark left us high and dry midstream. He's not fit for ministry and he's not coming. We need people with dedication, people that are going to go the distance, be willing to sacrifice all. And John Mark showed his colors. He is not prepared or ready for that. We don't want to set him up for failure. He doesn't need to come. Paul could have quoted Proverbs 25, 19. Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. Putting your trust. And an unreliable man is like chewing on a broken tooth or trying to run on a sprained ankle. And some of you might be thinking, yes, but wasn't Paul the preacher of grace? Yes, but would you loan money to a person who didn't pay off the first amount he borrowed from you? Would you let your sister's son stay in your condo and veil if he trashed it the spring break before? And so Paul is concerned about the mission, which is valid. And I think Barnabas is concerned about the man, which is also valid. And so you have opposing viewpoints. I mean, Barnabas, he could have quoted scripture too. Psalm 103, verse one, bless the Lord, O my soul and all that is within me. Bless his holy name, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. I imagine the appeal of Barnabas was that we serve a God of second chances, Paul. He's a God of grace. So the debate is heated. The contention was real. The viewpoints clashed. And folks, God is a God of grace, but he's also a God of justice. And so you may side with Paul. You may side with Barnabas, but both have valid points. And both disagreed with how this situation concerning John Mark should be handled. Sadly, another observation in heating disagreements, someone usually gets hurt. The more intense the heat, the deeper the wounds. Hurtful words can be spoken. Characters can be brought into question. Motives can be assumed and analyzed. And so we continue the story. Verse 39, then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Sadly, this is the last time in the book of Acts that Barnabas and John Mark are mentioned. But I want you to notice 
kind of at a side point, but maybe it should be the main point. In the midst of something challenging and perhaps not positive, God turns it around for good. As now we have two missionary teams instead of just one. Barnabas and Mark sailed southwest. Paul and Silas traveled north on foot. Cyprus was the hometown of Barnabas. Cilicia was the home province of Paul. And they hadn't visited there on their first missionary journey. But perhaps while he was there for the five, six, or ten years, he had a group of believers there that were raised up. And so we have two ministry teams instead of one. But let's go back to disagreements before we leave this. And let's look at some strategies when facing difficult disagreements. Because I imagine if you're human, you have disagreements. You have points of conflict in your work, with your coworkers, with a supervisor, a boss. Someone just this morning said, we were trying to sleep and they were partying next door. And I went over and asked if they could turn it down at 1230 and they wanted to get in a fight with me and on and on and on. And so I said, you know, if you take another step, I'm going to have to call the cops. And they finally turned the music down. Conflict. You don't have to go looking for it. It comes looking for you in the form of loud music next door. So one thing to keep in mind, when in a disagreement, work hard to see the other point of view. I'd also submit, begin by listening. Most begin by assuming, but that's never a good idea. Don't assume you know why they're doing what they're doing. Don't assume why they said what they said. Ask them. Listen. Take some time when you can sit down undistracted, unhurried, and listen. And this might require some humility and some objectivity and an honest look at your own contribution to the problem, but it's worth doing. Philippians 2, 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Usually in a disagreement, we're only looking out for number one. What about them? What might be behind their response, their reaction? What are they going through or dealing with? And is it possible that I am just the individual that they are deciding to take it out on? I don't know. But don't just look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Secondly, when both sides have validity, seek a wise compromise. Now, this isn't a call to compromise biblical truth. There are times we need backbone. There are certainly times to stand firm and not give in. But we must recognize that not every hill is a hill worth dying on. Many issues can be worked through. Now, don't get me wrong. I admire those who stand for truth. But I don't admire much those who stubbornly demand to have it their way or no way. To never bend, never compromise, never willingly and graciously seek a suitable solution. No, there are times that we need to say, okay, let's come up with a way that both of us can be happy. Let's give John Mark some minor assignment here in Antioch and see if he fulfills the responsibilities. Meanwhile, we'll go ahead on our journey. Or let's take Mark and a few others also. And if Mark defects again, we'll have others to fall back on. Diplomacy solves disagreements at the table, not on the battlefield. And yes, compromise will require me to sacrifice some of my cherished viewpoints, but in so doing, I won't be sacrificing the relationship. Yes, the mission is important, but so are the men and women that comprise the mission. It always pains me when a church is so bent on mission that it runs over people in the process. And maybe you've seen that too. Mission is good, but running over people is not good. Thirdly, when the conflict persists, care enough to work it through rather than walk out. Hollywood shows us very well all the time that what do you do when you're mad? You walk out. You hang up on somebody. You slam the door. You peel out as you leave. You bolt from the marriage. You quit your job in a huff. Friends, none of those are helpful to the situation. Perhaps your tactics are more subtle. Manipulative, silent treatment. Being passive 
aggressive, making short, stinging comments that are hurtful, but in no way work towards a resolution. Folks, none of these are how we should deal with a disagreement and a conflict. No, you work it through. You stay at it. And it may be some of the hardest work you will do, but it may also be some of the most rewarding. And yes, there are times when you'll still have to quit that job, but only after you've given every effort to find a solution. Only after you sat down on numerous occasions and listened. What does it say in Romans 12, verse 18? If it is possible, meaning there's times it may not be possible, but if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live how? Peaceably with those those that are peaceable, those that are agreeable, those that are easy to get along with. Live peaceably. As much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And fourthly, when it can't be resolved, graciously agree to disagree without becoming disagreeable. From all we can tell, Paul and Silas agreed to disagree. You go your way, I'll go my way. But we don't find places in the Bible where Paul, in other letters, defends himself at the expense of Barnabas or John Mark, nor do we find evidence of Barnabas licking his wounds. They both get over it and they both move on. In fact, we have proof that Paul moved on. Look what he writes about John Mark. He says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Praise the Lord. Here's another one. From Paul, Philemon, verse 24. As do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. Folks, too many people brood over past injustices. You've met them. They're still bleeding from a wound suffered decades ago. And you might be saying or thinking to yourself, yes, but pastor, you don't understand. Their viewpoint has no validity at all. They were ruthless. They were heartless. They spread all kinds of lies about me. They assassinated my character. And you want me to just let it go? While hanging on a cross, naked, humiliated, spat upon, mocked, and despised. What did Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they have no idea. They have no clue what they're doing. They don't get it. They don't understand. But Lord, they don't need to understand. Forgive them. For they know not what they do. Jesus managed to utter those penetrating words through bleeding, cracked lips, swollen from the noonday sun, impaled on that cruel Roman cross. And in the midst of his own agony, he's interceding on behalf, not of his friends, but his enemies. What an incredible model of forgiveness. And folks, he's our model for correctly resolving disputes. I mean, ultimately, it's a matter of forgiveness. They don't know what they're doing. So, Father, forgive them. Wow, what a way to live. So, in concluding, try and turn over a new leaf. Various viewpoints. Some say my sermons are too long. Do you have any unhealed wounds? Maybe those wounds surface from time to time. Maybe it dates back many years. Maybe it brings to mind the face of a parent or a child or a friend or a former spouse, a fellow employee, a boss, a ball coach, pastor or a sibling. They've wounded you. And the pain has lingered all these years. And just the sound of their name, a picture, even seeing a car that looks like theirs, raises your blood pressure. My friend, it's time to move on. Seek a solution. Get help from someone else if you must, but get on with it. Whatever it takes to be free, do that. And perhaps in a symbolic way, we can stand before Christ this morning at the foot of the cross and look up at him and deliberately release it all. Folks, we're living in the judgment hour. I believe that the history of this earth is about to close. All around us, we see Bible prophecy being fulfilled. You can't switch on the news and not see something that's according to scripture or the spirit of prophecy. Friends, this is no time to hang on to grudges. It's time to let them go. 
in the grace that Christ has first shown us. So in your mind's eye, can you see Christ hanging there, bleeding and dying and embrace his forgiveness for you and your enemy? Now, by forgiving, you're not condoning their sin. You're simply leaving that to God. That's his turf, not yours. And yes, that's grace. And you can offer it to others because you don't deserve it either. Dear Heavenly Father, in life, in ministry, at home, at work, we can come into points of conflict with one another, opposing viewpoints, and sometimes they can become heated and then they can be sharp. But Lord, help us to remember in those times to do our best to see their viewpoint, to seek a wise compromise, to commit not to walk out, but work it through. And if we cannot come to a compromise, at least disagree without becoming disagreeable. And Lord, at times it will require us to say the same prayer you did on Calvary. Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. But Lord, help us to move forward in the grace that you've offered to us. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.